From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. A very good afternoon to you. It's 101.9 High FM. I'm Kate Turkington, and we're going traveling with Kate. We're also going to be talking books, and we're also going to be interviewing a remarkable young woman who started 16 years ago with no money, a computer and a degree and a teaching diploma who has now changed the lives, and I'm not exaggerating, has changed the lives of thousands and thousands of young South Africans. So a a story really to uplift us and make us feel good. But first of all, I'm going to talk to you today about Johannesburg. I hear you think, why is she talking about Johannesburg? Because even if you live in Johannesburg, I can tell you, there are lots of places you haven't been to, lots of things you can do that maybe you don't know about. And I'm going to give you an insight into some of them. And here, I must tell you, I have a young travel colleague called Iga Matilska, and she like I, I do, she writes for Fodor's, the big international travel guides. Uh, the publishing house is actually based in uh, New York. And just to give you an idea of the power of Fodor's and its output, their website, Fodor's.com, F-O-D-O-R, apostrophe S, dot com, Fodor's.com, gets four million visits a month to their website. So my young colleague, Iga Matilska, she wrote the Johannesburg chapters for the, it's called the Essential Guide to South Africa. And she knows Johannesburg. She knows, I have lived here for 50 years. She knows things much, much younger than me. She knows things that certainly I didn't know. And maybe you won't know. Uh, either. What you do know, of course, it's called Goli, Josie, uh, affectionately known by all of us, commercial heart of South Africa, primary gateway for international visitors. And they think, oh, I don't want to spend a night in Johannesburg because it's a big bag city uh, full of crime. No, no way. There's lots, lots more. Historically, it's where money is made and fortunes are found. And the city, I think, in some ways fair, but it also has an unfair reputation for being an ugly, dangerous place you ought to avoid on any trip to South Africa. You may know, you do know, that Cape Town is the most dangerous city in the world, not the bubble, not the bubble, the central part with the waterfronts and whatever or the wineries, but the most dangerous city in the world because of the gangs and what happens uh, in places like Kailitsha. So Johannesburg, not half as dangerous 
uh, as Cape Town, and it has this reputation of being ugly and dangerous with overseas visitors. Avoid it if you come to South Africa. Mm-mm. No, no. Those of us who live here know it's actually very, very pretty, very beautiful in some places. Why? We used to write, but apparently it's not quite true. But Johannesburg does have one of the largest human-planted forests, urban forests in the world. You stand on any hill, you go to Melville Corpies or you go somewhere high in Johannesburg, you will see mile after mile, kilometre after kilometre of trees. We do have in Johannesburg one of the largest, we used to say man-made, but it's not woke anymore. So we say the largest, one of the largest human-planted urban forests in the world and statistically I'm a bit like Mark Twain I think there are lies, damn lies and statistics but statistically it's less dangerous than the Western Cape and of course what Josie does do it epitomizes our very paradoxical makeup it's rich, it's poor it's innovative it's historic or rolled into one and at times I do think it seems as if nobody actually comes from Johannesburg I'm sitting in the studio here with Harry my producer Vusi my controller uh, Kundi who's doing other things not one of us actually comes from Johannesburg Johannesburg is made up of people from elsewhere not only South Africans Italians, Portuguese, Poles, Chinese, Hindus, Swazis, English, Zimbabweans, Nigerians. So, Josie, it's a fascinating city, and I'm going to tell you some of the places you may not know about. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, and I'm talking about Johannesburg. And as I said there just before the break, hardly anybody we know actually comes from Johannesburg. We all see many of us, maybe most of uh, Johannesburg's inhabitants come from somewhere else, whether it's KZN or Nigeria or ever. But as I said to you, the, the city actually epitomizes the whole of South Africa's very paradoxical makeup. Okay, so Iga, my colleague Iga Matuska, gave me 10 reasons why we should visit South Africa, uh, visit Johannesburg, or if we live here, 10 things we ought to do. Some of you may have done some of them. Some of you may have done all of them. Uh, I haven't done all of them, but most now I intend to do. If you want history in your lifetime, you've got to go to the Constitution Court at Constitution Hill. Houses the, the court was built, as you know, on the site of a prison whose inmates included Mahatma Gandhi, Albert Lutuli, and loads and loads of ordinary people like you and me, of whom there is sometimes a record 
and sometimes isn't. But it is a fascinating place to go to. And when I say to visitors, we're going to Constitution Hill, they think, hmm, Constitution Hill, it sounds very boring. Am I interested in this? They're blown away by the end of the visit. And if you haven't been there, go there. Soweto, of course, you've got to go for the history, the whole history of the apartheid struggles, the Hector Peterson Museum. You remember that iconic picture of Hector Peterson lying bleeding and dead in the arms of a young woman, that photograph really, which almost changed world history. You can go to the Hector Peterson Museum and we have, we have so many firsts in South Africa and we have unique places and we have in Johannesburg a unique place in the world. We have the only street in the world, in Soweto, Vilikasi Street, that was the home of two Nobel Peace Prize winners, uh, Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Just think about that. The Nobel Peace Prize, how rarely is it given? And to what great figures is it given? And there in Soweto, we have the street where not one, but two Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, were born. And if you are, if you are very um, daring, you can always do a bungee jump off the top of the uh, Soweto Towers. My friend Eager did that. Need to say I haven't done that. If you go into the city centre of Johannesburg, of course you've got Bramfontein, you've got Mabineng, lots of trendy restaurants, and undergoing quite a bit of a, a rebirth at the moment. 44 Stanley, I'm sure many of you have gone to, uh, a, a very leafy uh, retail uh, complex. Uh, it, it was a, an industrial block at one stage, but it's all been refurbished now. It's got stores, galleries, cafes, restaurants, lovely little independent cinema. Uh, Google Google 44 Stanley and find out what the movie is there showing this week. So I have some lovely old favourites, have all kinds of, um, all kinds of movies going on there. And local artists, uh, selling and showing their crafts and their art. Cradle of Humankind says Ego, one of the places you've got to visit. Maraping, another world heritage site. Evolution, fossils, paleontology. And if that sounds very off-putting, uh, process shown to you in a very user and child-friendly day. Very, very interactive, the, the whole thing. I did, somebody did, did tell me recently, in fact, uh, somebody I know tried to take visitors to the Sturtfontein Caves. This was about a month ago, and where are we now? April. They had been flooded. I don't know what the story is now, but if you do go out to Maripeng to the Cradle of Humankind, it's only 40 minutes from the centre of Johannesburg. If the caves are open, you must go in to the cave to see where our early ancestors once lived and roamed, and where, as far as we know at the time, there was the first human use of fire, maybe where the first braai was uh, made. Okay, you can go to Melville, 
Oh, and Emma Rinsey, of course, you've got the Johannesburg Botanical Gardens. You can picnic, you can walk, if you're, you can keep your dogs on a lead there, but a lovely, lovely urban uh, park. Sandton, of course, you know about. Financial Centre, tallest building on the continent. Did you know that? The Leonardo is the tallest building on the African continent. I don't know if there are others going up elsewhere in Africa at the moment, but as we speak, as of today, the Leonardo, and you can actually do a tour of the Leonardo. I did it. I can't remember, I can't remember if we paid. Yes, we must have. I forget. But you can book a tour and it really is fascinating to do. Go around this very posh hotel and then you end up with this stunning, stunning view of Johannesburg and surrounds. Remember in the old days, uh, you could go to the top of the Carlton Centre and get, I think at one time that was the tallest building in Africa. Uh, but now you can go to the top of the Leonardo and look at the uh, views. We have the best climate in the world, although I did say that once on air, and a meteorologist, I can't say that word, meteorologist, is that right? Anyway, the weather guy uh, called in and said, no, 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 actually Harare is considered to have the best climate in the world, but we are very, very uh, close uh, behind, so eat your heart out, uh, Cape Town. That's something we do have, one of the best weathers in the world. What you can do, you can do lovely heritage walks. The Johannesburg Heritage Foundation, you can just Google that too. Maybe many of you know about it. The Johannesburg Heritage Foundation organizes walking tours. So you can go and look at some of the old houses, you can look at the gardens, you can, you can look at some of the grand old houses, uh, of the, uh, past there. And, uh, I think that you can organize them in the week, but they do, they do run them, I think, monthly. As I say, just Google Johannesburg Heritage Foundation if you're interested in going into some of the history. And then there's a special interest guide. Uh, I've done tours with her, uh, called Jo Betendach. And she runs a company called Past Experiences. Again, you can Google Past Experiences. And you can do the most fantastic walking tours with her. You can do the Ethiopian section of the, of Johannesburg. You can do a mining, going to the mining district. You can go on a fabric walk where she takes you to the shops where they have these wonderful West African fabrics. You can do a shopping tour, but not shopping a la Santon, shopping, uh, shopping in some of the, you know, of migrant stores, immigrants, uh, stores, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, and you can eat local food at many of these, um, many of these places too. So that's, I think it's past experiences. Dot co dot za. Walking tours. You can go to Chinatown in Seraldine. That's a fantastic walking tour to do. And these aren't route marches, people. They're just gentle strolls. Joe knows everybody and everybody knows Joe. So you really are welcomed 
with open arms whatever kind of walking tour you do. And also, if you've got visitors from overseas, lovely thing to take them on, choose a particular tour. Okay, we're going to be back, or I'm going to be back after the break. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, and we're going to talk to somebody now who is CEO of the Good Work Foundation. And when I talk to her, you'll, you'll realize why it's called good work, because the good work she and her foundation do is absolutely amazing. So the Good Work Foundation, GWF, it's a non-profit organization. It's here, based in South Africa, and it's totally committed to providing digital learning opportunities for children adults in rural areas. And the organization was it 10 years ago, Kate, or 20 that you started? Yeah, Kate, um, hi. Yes, it's 16 years ago 16. we started, but in the format is now it's been 10 years. Yes. Okay. Anyway, Kate Grock, the founder, she wanted to create a platform for underprivileged children to access quality education and this very important thing, digital Literacy. I mean, it's okay teaching our children to read and write. I mean, it's wonderful. But we live in a digital world. So the GWF, the Good Work Foundation, it operates several digital learning centers. And we're going to be talking to uh, Kate about that and what they actually do. And the flagship program is called the Digital Learning campus. And I think I'm going to start off by uh, asking you to suck your thumb, not how do you all begin, but at present, how many children learners would you say have gone through the Good Work Foundation in the past, you said 16 years, 10 years? Yeah, Kate, um, that's a hard number to come to because the one thing about children is every year there's another grade that comes through. And we don't lose them once they've been through. So we're probably looking at, uh, we're, we're at about 8,000 children every year in the program. Sure. Um, so over the 10 years, we're looking, yeah, getting close to sort of, well, definitely over 50, 60,000 children have had chance to learn with us, um, as well as 5,000 or so at young adults. So the numbers keep growing because we don't lose that network once they've been through, you know, through the beginnings of the program. We growing our program with the young people as they get older. Okay, um, now, yeah. now let's go back to the beginning. How did it all begin? Yeah, it's. I mean, I've had a wonderful time because we celebrated 10 years in Pumalanga last year, so we spent a lot of time reflecting on the journey. And I always find it so interesting when you look back, there are these lighthouse moments along the way, which when you woke up that morning you didn't realize was going to be such a big moment. But the one thing um, I was certain of when I left school was that I never wanted to be a teacher. And so you can imagine I was a bit surprised when I found myself teaching in the free state of quite a few years later. Um, you know, I found myself in the town of Philippolis. I'm a math, science and biology teacher by training. 
And so I got snapped up very quickly into the high school working with the matrix there. And I think for myself, it was a real eye-opener as to the difference between an urban and a rural setting for young people. Um, you know, whether you're the, were the top student or the, the bottom student, the outcome was the same the next year. You were still in Philippolis. And I think that was a real awakening for me and I think part of the, the spark that started the thoughts about GWF. Um, and just trying to figure out how can we possibly um, access these young kids and make sure that we tap into the potential and the creativity that's sitting there but just doesn't get the chance to, um, you know, to, to, to reach their full potential. And so we worked really hard at that school and, you know, we, we moved metric results from 23% to 97% sure. and all those wonderful things. But the, the thing for me which was most important is we got one or two um, young people into um, universities of technology or university. And the moment we did that, the moment we did it for one or two children, it became possible for everybody. And that changed everything. And I think that was the real sort of spark that got, got going is how can we make sure as many people get the chance? Because every child that does it or succeeds makes it possible for a whole lot of other children in their, in their thoughts and their dreams to do it. So that was the real beginnings of Good Work Foundation. And, and just, just talk us through. So I'm a rural child. Let's say in, in Pumalanga, I'm a rural young person. I've got a bit of education. I know nothing about the digital world. What happens to me when I walk through, when I walk through that, for example, that digital learning center in Pumalanga? Yeah, so I think there's two sort of levels of that, Kate. The first one is our school leavers. So we've got young people who are leaving the school system. As you said, a lot of them not with a lot of tech, um, technology um, training or learning. And we, we're very clear. You need to speak digital and you need to speak English to connect into the world of work. And that's that's part of what the bridging year that we operate um, provides for these young people. So they would arrive, they would do a year with us, um, and we would do end-user computers, we would do English for business, we would do careers and um, interest profiling, we do a media, you know, making sure that young people understand their footprint on the digital media space. Um, we also then do make sure they do one online course before they leave us. And the reason we do that is to make sure that you know, as you graduate from us, if you can use a computer, your English is better, you know which direction you want to go, you now can actually access training and qualifications, you know, for the rest of your life. And, and that's really important. But then because, um, as my friends call me, I'm a serial educator, I can't help myself. <laughs> we didn't want to just keep waiting, you know, for matriculants to, you know, to do a bridging year and get into the world of work. And that's where our open learning program started, which is down at the grade threes and four level to really see if, if we can make those small changes and those deep changes early on in a school career, what can we do to change the trajectory of these young people? So those young people are, I mean, they're ahead of me. They're coding robots. They're doing um, Lego and robotics and all sorts of things, but also conservation and creative arts and all those sort of things. So it's really sort of a two two-tiered approach. We don't want to ignore the young people coming out of um, the schooling system, and we want to connect them into 
jobs and careers and, and opportunities, but we also don't want to miss out in really shifting the trajectory for the little ones. So that's what we're doing. Now, yeah. money, money, money. So yes. I'm <laughs> Makes a kid. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I follow the money. I'm a kid yeah. coming from a rural home. I've just yeah. matriculated, but how can I possibly afford to do a digital learning course? Yeah, so we've, we, we so, we, we've actually been really lucky and we've worked hard at it. Um, you know, we have a lot of wonderful South African corporate partners who, who, who sponsor these young people. So the courses are highly, um, subsidized. So a young person would have to pay 700 rand to come and that's, we call it a commitment fee. Number one is it's a commitment from the young person. But for me, what's even more important is it changes the relationship from beneficiary to client. Yes. And the moment that young person has paid something, they're no longer a beneficiary, they're my client. And then our team has to produce excellence. And I think that's a really important shift. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, the economy of wildlife, which is where we are working, um, really has created a lot of, there's been a lot of benefit from that, but it's, there's a lot of beneficiaries. You know, you create a preschool or a clinic, and people are beneficiaries, and I really believe, and my team believes, it's time to shift from being beneficiaries to participants in this economy. And I think that's the shift with paying that commitment fee. Um, you know, with the, the young, the little ones who come from school, we've partnered with the department, so the children come during their school time. Um, and so those schools are non-fee-paying schools, so those children don't pay um, to come. They are subsidized also by donations and partners that we that we source so yeah so we we fundraise a lot we we always say we fundraise all day and then we dream about fundraising then we get up and fundraise yes <laughs> and, and tell us tell us the story talk us through some particular story you might remember yes i mean every sort of everyone on the campus has got a story but i think you know, for me, there's, there's, a, you know, my favorite thing to walk around Hazy View is I bump into most of our graduates in, whether it's in retail or restaurants or at lodges, and it really is wonderful to see that. But, you know, we've got um, a young man, um, Paris, who joined us. He was actually our first ever bridging year student who signed up. He finished his bridging year. He did the ICT Academy. We then asked him to help us pilot um, a social enterprise, which is a, a BPO desk or a call center desk. Um, that we were we were looking at doing, and he's become the top agent there, and he's a, a computer network engineer now. Goodness. But again, now what what he's done is he's shown us that it's possible for others, and we're busy working to get a 300, 400 seat call center going there now, so that more people get that same opportunity. So, you know, we've got young people who've, you know, there's a young girl who came to our early programs, and she wrote a book, and we were working with Stanford. Um, university in America and they had a program where they actually printed the book. They connected her with a, yeah. an author and her book is out. You know, we've got young people, you know, at lodges. We've just had somebody go now. Um, she, he's working now at Shalati in the Kruger National Park and he's a barista there now. You know, so I think there's so many as well as, you know, of my team, probably 80% of the team has come through our programs, you know, so, we, we, we back our own training because they become part of GWF too. Um, and so a lot of my managers and people who are running the campuses actually were bridging year students first, um, which is just wonderful to see. Kate, you make it sound so easy. I mean, you've set up. How many centers have you got now? 
So we have in Mpumalanga, we have five, and we plan to build another one the last quarter of this year. So there will be six in in that sort of system. And then we have the original one in the Free State in Philippolis, which is a lot smaller just because the numbers of people are smaller. But they all run the same programs. Um, but we do at Hazyview also have um, some career academies in ICT, hospitality, conservation, and facilitation um, because we, we see that there's, there, for some young people, there is a next step of more training that they are looking for. Um, but I think the, the wonderful thing is that it's, it's shifted the, the idea that you have to go away to get going, you know, to get your career, <laughs> career going. And that's a very few young people who can go to a university in Johannesburg or somewhere else. And so it's opening that opportunity for more and more more young people, and we, and we see that. I mean, in the beginning, people used to ask me, what if no one comes? And I said, well, if there's two in the class, then we give them 100%. And now, you know, we have thousands on a waiting list. So it's, you know, if I could double the size of my campuses tomorrow, I'd fill it. Um, and that's wonderful to me. I want to go back to, you know, you make it all sound so easy. You actually <laughs> started with nothing. You started with yeah. your degree and your teaching diploma. You have won so many awards now. You get international donors. But you started, you didn't have a rich uncle or a rich granny. You actually started <laughs> with nothing but your skill and your vision and your computer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if I go right back to the beginning, you know, it all started in the back of my red chico. You know, we moved cement and we moved rocks and we did all sorts of things. And I can't, I can't say that most of the things I did in the first couple of years were linked to my degree at all. I mean, we built roads and we made veggie gardens, but it, you know, it was an interesting thing, a lesson that, you know, if you arrive in a place and you're, and you arrive and are open and give yourself in service, the most amazing things happen. And and that's what's happened. And at every point of GWF, more people have arrived. And if it's just me, I have 24 hours in a day, but now we have 150 times 24 hours in a day. So we can get so much done. Um, and especially because most of the young people working with us understand the process because they've actually been through it. And what sort of inspires me every day is that if you ask my team why they want to do it is they want to be the person that they needed when they were nine. And to me, that's an amazing, um, you know, sense of service and sense of showing up for other people that these young people have. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's now starts to sort of grow on itself. I mean, I'm now, my role has changed and I'm in fundraising and telling the story, but the team run it and it's, you know, it just keeps growing and evolving as different people bring their energy and their ideas to it. And um, so it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And the communities themselves, when you started, as you say, you started in Philippolis, that little, yes. lovely little town actually, and they free state, but dire poverty and all sorts yes. of dire things uh, going on. How did the communities in early days receive you? Yeah, I mean, we've always been really welcomed. You know, I, I think it, we never ever once arrived and said, this is what we're going to do. And we, you know, came in, we sort of came in and immersed ourselves in Philippolis. I just lived there and did what was needed. And I think because communities guided us, um, there's never been a, re a resistance to what we do. Um, so much so that one of our favorite stories is when we brought in all these tablets, um, we had one go missing and Tab I was mortified. 
tablets. Sorry, the, like iPads. <laughs> yeah, sorry, those kind of, yeah, not yes. those tablets. Yes, yeah. okay. <laughs> Digital okay. tablets. Yeah. And, um, and it went missing. And a day later, one of the children brought it back because they'd seen it and they knew the games that were on it and they knew it belonged to us. And I think that was such an amazing moment where, you know, it's, the kids know this is what it's they driving it. They, they driving what they want to learn. They push us every year. We don't run the same course twice. You know, everyone's wanting to move forward and do more. And I think we've, when you work with the schools, we work with the children, we work with adults. You know, we're in so many parts of the community that we really have never felt any resistance and are guided, you know, by, by the community as to what's needed in that area. And I think that's been a really important part of the success. And the, the fundraising, which is also, you know, you, you talk about fundraising with yeah. whoever runs an NGO or something like yours and the, the sheer mm. hell of it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah. tell us about when you first started raising funds. I mean, now you're telling us the school children come in free, then after yeah. school, if you can get 700 rand together yeah. or in the yeah. system, and my word, yeah. then you're, you're going to grow and evolve. Yeah. But those early days of fundraising, what did you do? Where did you go? No. What did you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the early days, and, and I have this wonderful um, lesson that I do every year with the students where I go into the bridging year and have a class of Q&A with the CEO, they call it. And, you know, a lot of time they say, what are your challenges? And those first challenges were not actually fundraising. The first challenges were trying to get other people to, to, to understand what was in my head. Because you have this picture and you're trying to explain to others. And then some people start to join. And we had amazing um, early um, donors who just believed in an idea. And that's the thing when you start. You have to really find people now it's easier because we can take people and show them a thing that's happening and we can, we can say this is, we've got measurement and evaluation and where the kids are working. But those early days we needed to find partners who, who sort of believed in our idea. And we were very, very lucky to do that. You know, we, we connected with some American um, friends who've now become almost family. You know, we've had the early adopters in South Africa too in the businesses and then also the lodges at in the Mpumalanga area, have been huge supporters of us. So the we game, really the are. The game lodges. Yes, the yes. game lodges um, around Kruger have become part of our ecosystem of learning and working, which we call it. You know, so our young people are being placed there afterwards. You know, they are partners with us on some of the campuses. Um, so the rangers come and give lectures. You know, so it really has become a partnership. Um, and not just a donation. And I think that's, that's been a, um, an amazing thing. But the fundraising is difficult. Um, but we have a team that work on it pretty much all day, every day. And, you know, what somebody told us, uh, one of the, the guests at, at, um, one of the lodges said to us, get $10 the first time and then grow that $10. And it is, it's about relationships. It's about feeding back the information. When people come, they come to visit. When we go overseas, we visit. Um, and as you grow those relationships, those partnerships deepen, and that's how we've managed to to fundraise what we do. And I know you, I've watched your TED Talk. I mean, TED Talks, that's like the pinnacle when you actually get to do a TED Talk. What do you call your TED Talk, Kate? Yeah, I think it's, we call it um, changing, <laughs> changing from chance to choice. And, I, you know, we had a um, – the, the whole idea is that to move away from – 
the chance of being born in a Santon or a New York or a somewhere um, to that you don't get opportunity or access to learning. And we want to take that away. We want to put learning campuses and centers and digital spaces so that any child can choose to come and learn. It's not just, oh, surprise, I was born in a good place. It's actually now if you want to learn, that opportunity and that access is there. Because, Kate, you know, the digital space is so interesting. If you have it, it levels the playing field. If you don't have it, that just gets further and further apart. And so it's this amazing thing. If we can get that to to young people all over, um, it actually just levels it. Because you can be coding in Shabalala and New York, and you can be doing exactly the same thing. And, And to me, that's... That's the game changer, and that's really exciting for me. Well, of course, you've got the reputation. You said you've got a waiting list of thousands for all your campuses. But those going back to those early days again, I can imagine a child or a young person from a rural village perhaps hardly ever seen a computer or maybe seen it on television or heard about it. It must have been very, very fearful yeah, I mean, we had 30 brave souls who started with us. Um, and, and actually one of the 30 was one, my first trainer who was only about five lessons ahead of the students because none of us had run this, this program before. Um, and you know, these young people came in, but young people are interesting. As you get older, you, you, you're more nervous to make a mistake, but young people come in, you know, the older, the older kids sort of 25 and older battle a little bit because they're more nervous in case they break something. But the little ones, they come in and within a, in a session, they are on the, the iPads and onto the, the digital tablets and they're running games and they're changing, you know, the levels that they're on. And so it's very quick and it, it just sort of starts to feed on themselves. And we saw that the first year people were very reticent. The second year, even almost by osmosis, <laughs> the next people were more confident, you know, because it was starting to become a normal thing very quickly. Um, so we find, um, yeah, the, ki- the kids learn very quickly. And I, I, I suppose that's seen in the programs that we run because we started with just computers. Then we realized we must add the English component. But now there are about seven streams that are run in a bridging year um, because the, the young people are pushing. And I know this year we've just started another online English and a, a book club that everybody wants to do. So I think we, you know, the, the young people are pushing us. Young people want to learn. Um, you know, these young South African, young South Africans want to enter the world of work. They want to start careers and they're, you know, they're excited and hardworking. So, you know, it's, it's our job just to create the space for them to do that. So the future, obviously you're going to go on changing lives. Are you going to do anything differently? Although, as you say, you're changing all the time, but the future. Yeah, the future is an interesting one. You know, um, going coming through the pandemic sort of, I think, put a little bit of caution into us just because of our fundraising and things like that. But the idea is for the next, probably the next year or till maybe let's say next 18 months, we've we've really made a decision to focus deep, not wide, to really cement this ecosystem we're creating in Mpumalanga. Um, because we do feel we found something that if we can figure out how to scale it, can have impact in a lot of places over South Africa and even in other places. So we're really just trying to finalize this ecosystem with the call center and, and you know, the fundraising arm and, and all the academies and what we're running. Um, and then, then it's, I suppose, to look at 
how do we how do we do more of this? Um, how do we how do we do we um, mirror what we're doing in Mpumalanga, the whole thing in another place, or do we have satellite learning centres wherever that run from Mpumalanga? So we don't know exactly what it'll look like, but um, 16 years ago I had no idea it would look like it does now. So I think we'll just keep keep growing and keep learning with with our young people, and and keep adapting. I think as a an educator as a teacher who I am, the thing that gets me very excited is in about two or three years, our beginnings of our open learning become the bridging year age. And those young people won't need a bridging year. They will. Uh, so I'm excited to see what they'll be doing in our campuses because they can already use a computer. They're coding. Their English is, you know, and so what will they be doing in three, four years time using our space, I think will be very interesting and that we're all very excited to see. And just one very quick last question. Just describe your learning centre and the tree in in sure. in Mpumalanga there. So, because um, as yeah. I say, you know, little kids or up there, you don't want them to be intimidated. Just describe that space to me they come into. Yes, yeah, so we were given a, an, an old banana barn, which, barn, which we um, transformed. And so it's, you come in and it's a big open barn area in the, in the middle with sort of breakaway classes for, for different subjects and different um, programs. But in the middle of our Hazyview um, campus uh, barn is a huge, big, um, I suppose best described baobab tree. We call it um, Terabitus Digitata because it's our digital tree of knowledge. And it is a... It's a symbol to us, you know, to we've always in Africa learned from elders and teachers under the trees, and we want to continue to do that. Um, but under this digital tree now, our elders and teachers can be anywhere in the world. And that's what we, you know, why we have that tree. And the tree is a very important part of our culture. We meet there every morning as the whole team. Um, to learners learn under there. Any discussions or things happen under that tree, and it's, and it's really important. But I think... It's it's a yeah it's a beautiful building but it's about it's a building that we want to inspire um, you know young people to to dream into the future but also it's a very welcoming space because you have to find the balance between that and and Kate just give us your website it's um, www.goodworkfoundation.org.org okay thank you you're amazing and. From a classroom in Philippolis 16 years ago to thousands and thousands of students who've now passed through the doors of the Good Work Foundation. It's a remarkable story. Thank you. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, it's book time on Travels with Kate. And as you know, I do all kinds of books. I'm an omnivorous reader. Uh, and I'm very lucky, I think. I'm a very fast uh, reader. I think it is a gene. I didn't learn speed 
reading, but I will easily read a book a night in a couple of hours. And my late husband used to get so irritated with me. He used to test me sometimes after I've finished the book, give me a, like a little examination to see if I've read the book properly. Obviously, if I'm reading a crime novel or or quite light fiction, I'm going to read very quickly. If I'm reading like the Ian McEwan book I talked about a while ago, Lessons, where you go back and read a sentence because it's so beautifully written, or if I'm reading poetry, and I sometimes do, um, you go back and you'll read a line or you'll read a couple of lines for the sheer beauty of the words. But otherwise, it's just, as I say, I'm very fortunate I can read very, very quickly. That's actually why I bought a Kindle, because I travel so much and I can't be traveling with five or six books for obvious reasons. So I have my Kindle always. Not the same you don't get the same sensuous pleasure as you do turning the pages of a book and feeling the pages and sort of smelling the print and whatever. But a wonderful device to have, particularly if you're travelling or if you haven't means to go to a bookshop and buy books, and books are very expensive too. Well, they are on Kindle uh, too. OK, I have a lovely book for you this week. Herbarium. Herbarium. Subtitled Grow, Cook, Heal. Published by Thames and Hudson, Jonathan Ball uh, releases it in this country. And again, you'll find it at any good bookshop. And what is it? It's really a list of all the herbs that are available to us that we can use for growing, cooking or healing beautiful, beautiful illustrations. It's a paperback, but it's a very nice paperback. It's got quite a quality feel to uh, the cover. So you could look up almost anything from rocket to parsley to some I've never, ever heard of. And I open the page Lemongrass because I love lemongrass. So you get a lovely, lovely illustration. In this case, it's a kind of almost a surreal illustration. It's not a botanical drawing. The illustrations vary from, in fact, you could, you would never do it, of course, but you could actually take the pages out of some of the illustrations and frame them. They are so absolutely gorgeous. So lemongrass, it tells us, a perennial grass of tropical Asia and other warm climates. Lemongrass grows with abundance in the right conditions. So then it has a, a side um, uh, section where it tells you how to grow it. I actually grow it in a, in a pot. Uh, how to grow it. So that little subsection is called grow. Then there's a subsection that says eat with. So it tells us we can eat it with fish, seafood, meat, noodles, rice, mango, lime, papaya, ginger, garlic, basil, mint, star anise, I'd have to look up star anise. I've no idea really what star anise is. Chili, tamarind, and coconut. Then it says try, and it gives you a little mini recipe of how and when to use 
uh, lemongrass, and this is almost for like a homemade lemonade. It's a little tiny, easy recipe. And then finally, so you've got grow, eat with, try. And the last little sub-para is heal. And it says, being rich in iron, zinc, magnesium, and vitamins A, B, and C, lemongrass can help the body to maintain healthy cholesterol levels, reduce fever, and strengthen the immune system. And lemongrass tea can improve the quality of sleep. And then the the body of the page, the main part of the page, tells you much more about lemongrass. So every single herb, I'm rosemary, all I can remember is Hamlet's and Ned's rosemary uh, for remembrance. Again, uh, a little side panel with grow, how to grow it, eat, what to eat it with, we know lamb. Um, try, gives you a tiny little thing. I'll read it to you. If you have a mature rosemary bush in your garden, strip the leaves from a few stout branches and use the stalks as skewers for seafood or chicken kebabs, sharpening the ends first. Well, there you are. I've never thought of that. Pick a rosemary branch and use it as a kebab stick and heal. An infusion of rosemary can be taken for tiredness and headaches. Didn't know any of this. A massage rub can soothe aching joints. Inhaling rosemary can stimulate the brain. There you are, Fusi and Harry. If we're getting tired at any stage, we put some rosemary in some hot water and inhale it to stimulate our brains. Researchers are looking into the use of rosemary to enhance memory performance. How amazing is it that other than modern pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, totally scientific, uh, human-made, manufactured ones, how so many of the medicines we take are based on traditional medicine. Your malaria pills, your, your practically everything. So really, really lovely book. Doesn't have an author, doesn't give an author. It's just called Herbarium, Grow, Cook, Heal. Got a very striking cover of sort of impressionistic poppies and leaves and branches. You'll find it in good bookshops, I would think, only. Distributed by Jonathan Ball, published by Thames and Hudson. And Nigella Lawson, one of the very famous TV chefs, calls it exquisite and inspirational. So I think I'm keeping this one for myself, not giving it away for a present. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for being with us. I hope you enjoyed our travels. I hope you enjoyed our book. I hope you enjoyed listening to our interviewee. I'll be back next week with Harry and Vuzi and please join me. Lots of love, lots of life. Look after yourselves, travel safely and as I always say to you, don't only look after yourself but look after others too.